Good afternoon and welcome to the 122nd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we'll talk with Graham Mooney and Christos Linteris. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 8th, 2020, there are 27,424,421 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 27,208,206 cases reported yesterday. Of those, 6,318,978 are in the United States. That's up from 6,292,000. 206 cases yesterday, and now there are a total of 189,456 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers and in keeping with the Labor Day broadcast we had yesterday with Terrell Hagler, which was tremendous, and I hope if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, you'll go back and, and check it out. Philadelphia sanitation worker Terrell Hagler I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to keep doing that now with two brief obituaries. First one, headline, dedicated, kind, and dependable, longtime Crockett High School custodian who died from COVID-19 had big dreams. This is by Aaron Cargyle, July 21st, KXAN-TV in Austin, Texas, a longtime custodian at Crockett High School's early college high school who was diagnosed with COVID-19 has died. Principal Corey Crawford sent a letter of parents and teachers informing them about the loss of Manuel Alvarado, who worked at the Crockett campus in South Austin for the last 12 years. She's also behind a GoFundMe page that raised more than $9,000 for his family. During this time, he was a dedicated, kind, and dependable hard worker that always had a positive outlook, wrote Crawford. He was willing to do whatever he needed to support our community. When Alvarado wasn't working hard at the school, his daughter said he would spend a lot of his free time renovating a home for himself and his wife in Cedar Creek. They bought the five-acre property about 10 years ago and started fixing up an old ranch-style house on the land about two years ago. It was close to completion when he died on July 13th. He didn't have a chance to see it, and it's sad. It's really sad, said Rinaldo Rodriguez, Alvarado's son-in-law. I really think people need to think about it, that COVID-19 is not a joke. Alvarado's family said he worked at Crockett up until he started feeling sick and was only three days away from vacation. The family and Austin ISD both said they don't know how he got the virus. The district said it does preliminary contact tracing for all COVID-19 incidents and all affected employees are notified immediately. In Alvarado's case, after preliminary contact tracing was conducted, the Austin Independent School District said all team members who had potential primary exposure or direct contact were asked to quarantine as an extra precautionary measure. In a letter to staff and students, Crawford said before and after the school district, administrators were made aware of the positive diagnosis, protocols were followed, including closing sections of the building to disinfect areas, asking others who may have been in direct contact quarantine and requiring all staff to continue to be screened for symptoms upon arrival, wear masks, and practice social distancing. Alvarado was the second Austin School District employee. The district has confirmed, had confirmed, this is of July, as of July, had died after being diagnosed with COVID-19. The first was a food service worker from Cassis Elementary. Crockett honored Alvarado during the town hall meetings on July 16th, and the school is working with the family to learn how the Crockett community can help. Headline is COVID-19 took a manatee high custodian's life. The happy memories remain, family says, by Giuseppe Sabella, 
This was published July 25th in the Bradenton Herald. Even in the final moments of his life, Ramon Morales was there for others. Morales, a custodian at Manatee High School for more than a decade, died of COVID-19 on Wednesday. This is in late July. His family members said they believe the virus exacerbated his kidney issues, and they said the Florida Department of Health recently confirmed that COVID-19 was the cause of his death. Sierra Morales, one of his four daughters, said she heard from nurses at Manatee Memorial Hospital after her father's passing. They described him as funny and genuine, something the Morales family knew to be true. When he was in the ER, he was still trying to do jokes, Sierra Morales said. Her father would have celebrated his 65th birthday on August 1st. The Applebee's restaurant in Ellington, where he worked a second job, held a celebration of life from 7 to 10 a.m. that day, August 1st. The event included a sausage and pancake breakfast to raise money for his family. He never talked about what he did for anybody, said Monica Morales, one of his daughters. You would never know. His positive impact was clear this week when members of the Manatee High community shared gift cards, food, and plenty of memories with the Morales family. The restaurant in Ellington also planned to hang a plaque in his honor, Sierra Morales said. She remembered the time when Ramon Morales stopped an ice cream truck and bought treats for the neighborhood kids, and he always kept a few dollars in his pocket, waiting for a moment to share them with his grandchildren. He worked hard to care for his family in Manatee County, along with his mother and siblings in Durango, Mexico. He offered the same dedication and kindness to all people, said Sierra Morales, describing her conversation with a Manatee High employee. She was telling us how kids didn't have money to eat, and he would give them money to get food, even if it was his last dollar. Family members said Ramon Morales worked his last day as a Manatee High custodian on July 8th. About one week later, he visited the hospital for shortness of breath, leading to a positive test for COVID-19. His daughters said they were unsure where he contracted the virus. Because of safety precautions during the pandemic, the daughters were not able to visit the hospital, but they called Ramon Morales on the phone every day. Separated by a window, they were finally able to visit their father after his death. COVID is something serious, Sierra Morales said. You're walking down and every patient in the ICU is on a ventilator. It hits home. You never know when it could be your loved one. Ramon Morales is survived by his wife and six children. They will always remember a man who found joy in fishing, cooking barbecue, and attending church. They will remember a man who took pride in his work, especially when it came to painting the football field at Manatee High. And above all, they will remember a man who lived to serve his family and community, said Elaine Morell, his daughter-in-law. He was a caring person, she said. He put other people before himself. All right, let's turn to our conversation for today, continuing our tradition of having historians of medicine and public health on to interpret the past in light of the present. I'm really excited to introduce my guest today, Christos Lenteris is a medical anthropologist and senior lecturer at the University of St. Andrews in the UK. His research focuses on the anthropological and historical examination of epidemics, zoonosis, epidemiological epistemology, medical visual culture, colonial medicine, and epidemics as events posing an existential risk to humanity. Dr. Lenteris's new project, which is slated to go until 2024, the global war against the rat and the epistemic emergence of zoonosis will examine the global history of a foundational but historically neglected process in the development of scientific approaches of zoonosis, the global war against the rat, 1898 to 1948. Dr. Lenteris's recently completed project, Visual Representations of the Third Plague Pandemic, which ran from 2013 to 2018, collected and analyzed photographs and other visual documents of the Third Plague Pandemic which lasted from 1855 to 1959. And I want to give a little plug here for updates on the new project. Uh, you can check out his Twitter handle, at Visual Plague, and be sure to check that out. My second guest is Graham Mooney, an associate professor in the Department of the History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. He has an adjunct appointment also in the School of Public Health's Department of Epidemiology. His book, Intrusive Interventions, Public Health, Domestic Space, and Infectious Disease Surveillance in England, 1840 to 1914, appeared for the University of Rochester Press in 2015. The book examines the history of public health interventions, such as infectious disease notification, institutional and domestic isolation, 
disinfection, and contact tracing under late 19th and early 20th century liberalism. His new book is called Harm City, project underway now, Harm City, Health and Injustice in Urban America, based on a class that he teaches at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health, uses case studies of race and class politics in Baltimore, exploring the fracturing of public health systems and policy in neoliberal American cities. Christos and Graham, thank you so much for making time to come on COVID calls today. Thanks for having us. <clears throat> and Christos is, uh, we have to always acknowledge when our guests are sacrificing sleep uh, to come on COVID calls, calling in from Scotland uh, today, this evening. Thank you for that. I'd like to start the way we usually do, which is just to find out exactly where people are calling from and, and how the pandemic is, is looking there right now. So uh, Christos, let me start that with you. Uh, so yes, I'm in uh, St Andrews, which is a very small town in Scotland, uh, a medieval town. Uh, and up until recently, we had a, a, a decreased population because the students were away when lockdown was imposed. It was a spring break, so they were not allowed back. Uh, so the town had less than half of its normal population. So it was a very quiet lockdown. Um, but now, well, lockdown was lifted in mid uh, July and students are now returning there. Uh, we are starting a classes on Monday, actually. So it's becoming more busy. Uh, and at the same time, Scotland is now reimposing lockdown in several areas. I think there are around 1 million people in the country uh, currently under one form of lockdown or another. Uh, so we're going back into lockdown in several areas. And there is, the, of course, the fear that uh, St. Andrews will be one of these, you know, of, you know the next area or uh, because of, uh, you know, we have so many international students and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a vibrant place and we want to keep it that way. But, you know, this always comes with a risk. You mentioned before we went on that they're setting up a walkthrough testing facility there, I guess, in anticipation of the need for it, huh? Yes, that's not the way that the government puts it, but it's hard not to say it that way. It's the first one in Scotland. Mm, I see. And has Scotland been allowed to, I don't want to step in the middle of politics here of Scotland and England, but here we go. Um, how much has Scotland been allowed to follow its own pathway in terms of national policy around lockdown, testing, tracing, things like that? Uh, considerably, yes, including, um, say, uh, quarantine. So, Scotland has the ability to uh, require people to quarantine when they arrive from different countries than the ones that uh, England considers to be uh, not safe, for example. Uh, and of course, it has its own lockdown regulations. It uh, opened and closed things at different times. Well, it all closed at the same time, but they, they opened things much more slowly. Uh, so in general, Scotland has been doing much better and it's a much more, well, let's be honest, responsible government uh, and one much more informed by kind of solid, good science than uh, the English government is. Have those uh, fractures exacerbated existing tensions or not Not as much? It's hard to tell from over here in, in the US. We have our own fractures to keep up well, with, but... Yeah, for yeah. the first time since the the referendum, the opinion polls for another referendum show that the majority of uh, people in Scotland are for independence. And, well, political analysts think it's because of the way that Scotland uh, managed the, the COVID crisis to some extent. I see. Okay. Well, thank you for that uh, orientation. And Graham, same question to you. Where are you calling in from and how's it looking there? I'm calling in from Maryland, which is on the eastern seaboard of the United States, Baltimore. Um, I was just looking at the recent figures. So Maryland's its most recent um, positivity rate is about 3.84%, which has gone up slightly the past few days. Um, and that's coinciding with the third phase of the state's return to whatever normality is going to be in the future, but um, where, so, that, so they're allowing more people into the retail stores, um, theatres can open at, I think it's about 50% capacity, uh, but there are still 
you know, masking ordinances in place um, and social distancing measures, um, physical social distancing measures. Um, most of the counties in the state started up their new school year today. Um, so as far as I'm aware, all the counties have gone into distance education mode, although they were allowed if they wanted to, to adopt in person, but I don't think any have. So, um, and Hopkins has been, Johns Hopkins where I am, uh, the university has been, the semester started last week and it's all distance, on, it's all distance and online. Just a, a follow up there, Maryland is, is one of the few states left that has sort of divided government, right? Don't you have a Republican governor there? Yeah, we have a Republican governor, Larry Hogan, um, and Baltimore itself is a is a Democrat Democrat city, and so what's tended to happen is that Baltimore is as there's, there's there's a fair amount of independence that the city can have from the state in terms of adopting regulations. So it doesn't always follow the state in relation to the sorts of things it's doing. It tends to be a little more um, interesting, a little more conservative in the sense of not allowing. Uh, things to open indiscriminately or, you know, being quite strict with some of its regulations. Graham, I wonder if you were asked, I was certainly asked, uh, what did Drexel do during the 1918 influenza pandemic? Did anybody ask you for that, that similar question of what was going on at Hopkins there in 1918? Uh, Hopkins, they were busy studying the virus. Right, um, right. You know, and they, they, you know, they, they were trying to understand you know, they didn't exactly know it was a virus, obviously, in 1918, uh, but there was plenty of work going on behind the scenes in the labs. Um, I actually had a student a few years ago who looked at, we have all the um, autopsy records of all the patients that died at Johns Hopkins going back to the 1890s, I think. And I had a student who looked at the influenza, some of the influenza autopsies, and they were trying to work out and understand what was going on. So there was a lot of research going on in the labs uh, here at Hopkins during the 1918 um, pandemic, yeah. So as we start out, I just want to, you both have expansive work, um, but I'm curious just if you could ground us a little bit in your research and particularly areas in the research that you find uh, coming up for you now, finding some resonances between the work you've done in previous books or other kinds of projects that you find yourself reflecting on on now, um, maybe even cases where you've, um, like I have recently, not changed the way I thought about materials I've looked at before, but I look at them somehow with fresh eyes. Christos, can I start with you? Uh, yes, so uh, I, I'll give you an anecdote. I think it was the 31st of December when I first noticed, uh, well, what we now call COVID. Uh, you know, being around in Wuhan. And my area of expertise is China. And I immediately uh, contacted a, a, another colleague, Frederick Keck in Paris, who works on uh, epidemics in China. And I said, well, you know, you know, look at this. Do you think this is going to be the next pandemic? And we both laughed. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was one of these things that had all the characteristics that, you know, you would expect a, a pandemic, uh, you know, to share. Uh, you know, in the stereotypical kind of narrative in the West about pandemics. Uh, and, you know, the key was the wet market, of course. So uh, my first interest in this pandemic was the wet market, even before it became a pandemic, when it was in China, and the way that the wet market in Wuhan was being framed. Um, so for me, this is a very interesting case because it, it, it highlights the uncertainty about uh, zoonotic origins about spillovers, right? It's one of these things that anthropologists and historians and geographers and others have been saying that uh, it is one thing to, to say that, well, you know, plague comes from marmots or from rats, you know, and that's how it, spread, it spreads from, from them to humans. And it's a completely different thing to be completely certain about how a human epidemic starts. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the same problem with Ebola and Looking historically, we had the same problem with every single zoonotic outbreak. Even when we were certain about the host organism, it is very, very hard you know, to reconstruct the exact pathway 
of the spillover or of the transmission. Mm. Um, and it, Manchuria, which is one of the areas of, of great interest to me, had several pneumonic plague outbreaks, presumably coming from uh, marmots. Actually, it could be from other wild rodents carrying the disease there. But there was a very systematic hunt for marmots at the time, so we can presume uh, that marmots were the source. But at the same time, putting the blame on a specific group of people hunting these marmots or another group of people, be it natives or be, be it coolies, uh, so-called coolies at the time, Chinese migrants from Shandong, is something which is always political. And it is something that can very, very, it's very, very difficult to prove. It's the same case with Wuhan. Some people say that uh, the Wuhan uh, seafood and wholesale market, the so-called wet market, was the actual source of the spillover from an animal to humans. Others say that, well, maybe it was someone who worked there who had the, the virus and then spread it to several other people. Mm. You know, there are very many, many different ways of looking at this. But everyone just jumped on the case of the wet market saying, well, here it is, again, the wet market like in SARS, which forms more part of, a, if you want, a Western imaginary of pandemics than of an actual serious epidemiological investigation. And it, it, in my opinion, it stops us from thinking, from thinking critically, thinking in complex ways about epidemic uh, outbreaks. Uh, if we have decided already that wet markets are the source of, of epidemics, then you know, we can sleep uh, you know, quiet at night to some degree because we know where to look for and where to stop them. Once we start realizing how complex these processes are, then things become much more difficult. But I think it is very, very necessary, uh, you know, to engage in the complexity of zoonotic uh, transmission and spillovers. And it is very dangerous to blame and stigmatize a particular uh, practice, which is the so-called wet market. It's actually a meaningless term. It's a Western term to describe hundreds mm. of different ways of, of uh, uh, trade in China. Uh, and it is something that if it was uh, adopted, if say the ban of all wet markets was adopted, it would probably lead to famine in China because in some areas it's 60% of, of people's subsistence uh, that depends on these markets. So it's completely ridiculous as a notion. And yet it is being reproduced all the time in the media and of course by politicians. The term wet market, just to, to be clear, it, it, I mean, even that seems very broad, but is it, it it just refers to the idea that animals are being butchered in a place where they're also being sold and there's no separation between those two activities? Or is there somehow there's something more specific than that? Well, the, the term wet, wet market is a Western term. Right. Um, as I said, it's not used in China. And it is used uh, in, in, in a random way so as to accuse. It's an accusatory term in reality. It's not a descriptive term. Um, in reality, there are markets which uh, sell uh, farmed animals and wild farmed animals. So animals which we would consider to be wild, but they're actually being farmed. There are markets where animals are being butchered there. There are, un there are markets where fresh meat is being brought, meaning meat which has not been refrigerated or kept for too long. Any combination of these things would be called a wet market. Uh, and whether it includes animals or fish, uh, or whatever it could it could be a seafood market with a few mammals and this would still be called a wet market if that's our accusatory strategy so it's not a very very a, a very useful term uh, especially not useful epidemiologically a wild animal market is another thing that would be an epidemiologically useful term but a wet market is too broad You might be on mute, Scott. I'm doing that yesterday too. I know this week I'm I'm, I'm muting. Um, I uh, thank you for that, Graham. I just want to stay with this for a second because the, you know, to my mind, and, and maybe I've watched too many outbreak type movies, but the the virological specificity, like actually being able to say where the virus did originate, I have heard people say that's what's going to be very unique and special about this novel coronavirus is that we will actually be able to trace a pandemic from the beginning, from its beginning with some certainty. Uh, I'm not sure I've heard historians say that, but um, what do you think of that 
Christos, that that claim in and of itself. Okay, I'm here tempted to put my anthropological hat on and I say say that this is, uh, you know, to be very crude, it's mythic thinking, right? It's this passion for origins, uh, which actually, you know, would do very little to help us at this point. You know, it wouldn't particularly help us to know where the virus comes from. You know, potentially it could help us, you know, to prevent future epidemics, but as several uh, public health experts have said, the best way to pre prevent another pandemic is to have primary health care on the ground. It's not yeah. to have virus hunters around. Right? If you have doctors and nurses and, and good uh, diagnostic systems in every village, you know, then you won't have, well, even if you have an outbreak, it will stay in the village, and that's good enough. You know, you don't have to have uh, to chart every single animal and what viruses it has. This is extremely expensive and extremely pointless from the viewpoint of public health. You know, it may be nice for research projects run by universities, and I won't complain. I, I like running projects myself, but, you know, if we are talking public health, then we need doctors, nurses, and health centers and hospitals and universal uh, uh, healthcare coverage. That stops pandemics. But it's very, it's like a really exceptional um, sort of context to bring from the beginning because this idea of the being able to say with some specificity feels like the right modern thing to do. Like we want to know, get the virus hunter out there and tell us exactly where it comes from. But you're you're telling us, and I, I I'm very persuaded by this notion that that entire enterprise um, is a way is in often the way we treat disasters, which is we look just for one. We want to point to one exact thing. We want one fall guy or one fall country, as this administration in the United States has said, um, without looking for the broader reasons as to why it was able to spread, why it was able to go undetected in other countries and the very many other things. Graham, let me bring you in. Um, same question, kind of general question, where you find in, in, in your works over time, where do you find that work meeting this time? Well, I'll, I'll begin to, to link that point that Christos just made with my present project on public health in post-World War II urban America. And, yeah, we tend to think that the places where primary care investment um, on the ground uh, and people on the ground working in primary care that actually help prevent epidemic outbreaks is something that happens over there. Well, that isn't, obviously, we know that. And you know, one of the things that this pandemic has exposed in um, rather um, stark terms is you know, differential access to primary care in, across all different kinds of subgroups of the population, but you know, particularly racial, uh, racial and socioeconomic groups. So, so I, I would, yeah, yeah, and that's something that comes up constantly when you look at post-World War II urban America and healthcare is, you know, just differential access through discrimination, bigotry, um, and the healthcare, the structure of the healthcare system. So it, it's something that we, yeah, we, we need to, that, that question of access and presence and availability is something that we need to, and lack of, is we need, we need to be aware that it's not just uh, something that happens in you know, in places near wet markets in China, so that's one thing. I think that I think the you know another thing that has occurred to me as I've gone through this is I often teach public health as as an ideology of population management. Uh, you know, and by that I mean the way in which I've approached the history of public health in the nineteenth century, for example, to understand um, the sorts of interventions that we're seeing. A lot of in the present around isolation, around contact tracing, around mask wearing, around the reporting of disease, is about it has been around the ideology and language of citizenship, you know, the, the people's responsibilities um, and and duties and their rights. Um, and yeah, I, I for my book on Britain, England, yeah, that was very much yeah, liberal. The, the notion of liberalism. Um, you know, freedom and the ability for people to choose how to um, how to how, choose how to live, if you like, making rational choices was a very important concept in framing uh, in framing public health statecraft. 
Um, and public health is one of the few places where, or one of the few areas where direct government intervention was seen as an acceptable form of liberal governance. Um, and I think certainly being in the States has attuned me to think differently about just bandying the word freedom around in a rather, uh, in a, in a, in a non-English 19th century context because it, it, it's got very, very different resonances here. Um, and ones that seem to be you know, rooted in deeply historical reasons in the United States, but also ones that are sort of blithely accepted as, you know, as, as, as if, you know, in other words, freedom was only freedom for very few people, and it was circumscribed. And that, the, that notion of freedom for everybody is something that pervades the whole political discourse here. And it's, I've, I've found it useful and difficult thinking about how to present those notions of freedom to, particularly to an American audience when, um, when talking about the pandemic. Let's stay with that a, a little bit. Um, and just to point to an article that you published just this last week, Graham, in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, and you're talking about contact tracing. Let me just give a little quote from this. You said by the end of July 2020, more than half a million people had enrolled for a free online COVID-19 contact tracing course offered by John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, and around 20,000 had been recruited as contact tracers in the United Kingdom. You say, we've been here before in the late 19th century when bacteriology was a new science, a vast workforce of sanitary inspectors was assembled in the United States and especially in the United Kingdom. Um, and maybe you could say a little bit about the argument of that piece, but it, it again, coming back to this issue of freedom and the, the variability in way that people are framing freedom in the United States right now. So for example, when I read that, I think, oh good, um, you know, shoe leather, public health, as my colleague Esther Chernak calls it, I'm happy about that. To me, that's a form of freedom. That's a freedom from concern and worry um, to know that there are experts out there who are imagining risk and they're trying to intervene on my behalf. But I can already imagine headlines in certain news organizations in the United States, army of, you know, experts coming, liberals coming to your house, collecting private information. And that's just I've just made it bipolar. It's much more prismatic than that, I'm sure. Can you can you tell us a little more about this piece and how it maps onto this freedom question? Yeah, well, well just to pick up on that last point as well, there's been a lot of attention um, given to attacks on public health professionals here in the United States. I don't think it's so much happened in, in I don't know if it's happened so much in other parts of the world, but, you know, public health administrators, officials, health commissioners resigning their positions because of the sort of harassment that they're getting due to the, the, the kinds of things that they're asking people to do um, as a challenge to freedom. And so that, that's been a really disappointing, if you like, development here. But also I think what that says is that you know, we, public health is a very political enterprise. It's an incredibly political enterprise, if only because we spend gobs of taxpayers' money on it. Um, so so th there needs to be you know, a, a willingness to accept and take criticism when we're spending taxpayers' money in the name of public health. Uh, I think one of the things that's, that's, that's happened is that public health as, as a discipline, as a practice, um, as an ideology has sort of moved its way up into the, 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 the public discourse over the last six months. People suddenly realising what public health does, which is a perennial complaint of public health people, is nobody knows what public health does. Well, now they do, and guess what? Some people don't like it. So, yeah, that's a, a question of messaging and a question of, of, of uh, you know, the, where does the responsibility lie for people understanding what public health actually does? Um, and, yeah, one of the things that I argue in that piece that we can learn is that you know, persuasion isn't enough. It, re it never is enough because um, you, know, you have to, people balance their health with you know, looking after their kids, going to school and work. So public health, we, we may, you know, I'm an advocate of public health in general, as somebody who believes in prevention rather than, um, rather than down upstream, uh, you know, medical treatments but yeah we have it, there has to be a way in which we convince people 
that the things that public health does are actually economically beneficial. And one of the, what I say in that, that piece is that a lot of the, the later 19th century public health people said we should pay people to, who, who, who have been exposed to be housed separately. And this is actually fiscally responsible because they're not going to become sick and be an extra burden on the healthcare system or the welfare system in other ways. And so, so that, that, that kind of argument, I think, holds, holds, still holds, but it's not being made well enough. You know, that, 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 that sort of cost balance, cost benefit sort of type of analysis. So um, that's one of the things I think we can learn historically is how to frame those debates about getting people to, um, persuading people that this is actually you know, in their interests. It's interesting because, you know, first of all, those those tools of historical analysis would should be welcome in the contemporary debate, and as you pointed out here, could be very could be very useful. It's sort of a general notion in some gauzy past when people just accepted science or they accepted health because it was the right thing to do. Decontextualizing people in the 19th or the early 20th century, if I've got you right, what you're saying is, no, there was also cost-benefit analysis applied there, and cities and governments were saying, no, this is public health, but it's public health for broader social goods, like the economy. Is Have I got that right, the way you're talking about that? Is yeah, that yeah. I think, I think yeah, there's been an, an assumption, say, for example, that you know, bacteriology is a self-evident uh, it's self-evident the benefit, yeah, you know, the knowledge that bacteria. Well, of course, it didn't. It had to be sold to people. It had to be. You know, if you were going to use bacteriology as a case for disinfecting people's property, for example, yeah, you know, if they had an infectious disease, their carpets would be disinfected. And and Christos can tell you lots about disinfection methods as well. But yeah, you, know, you, you have to convince people that that is. Yeah, that's to their benefit because you may destroy those carpets, you may destroy their books, you may destroy their clothing. And so you have to give them financial compensation. And they did. They were given financial compensation. But a lot of work had to be done to to, 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 to show people that the, the, the science worked. And it's, it, just having the science itself is never enough. It's a socially contextual um, enterprise, as we know. It's fascinating to me. I, just over the summer, I taught a course with a colleague, Yansil Kang, on the history of climate change. And when we reached, um, you know, sort of point in the class where the students were asking, you know, they didn't realize how hard scientists had had to work in earlier periods of time to frame their case, to communicate, to be, to be policy entrepreneurs, the many different factors. And you know this this notion that scientists in the in the 1990s could just go appear before the Senate and then the Senate would say absolutely let's end climate change and how much money do you need uh, is again a sort of very it's a decontextualized a historical way of, of thinking of the struggle of making the scientific case in public. Remind folks that uh, you're listening to COVID calls. We're talking about public health history with Graham Mooney and Christos Linteres. Christos, I want to, um, in this issue of, of freedom and, and using historical cases, uh, I've, you published a piece in the New York Times in February, and I'm just going to read a, just a little bit of it here. You said anti-epidemic masks as we know them today. So this was published in February. Anti-epidemic masks as we know them today were invented in China more than a century ago during the Chinese state's first effort to contain an epidemic by biomedical means. When the pneumonic plague struck the northeastern provinces of the Chinese empire in the autumn of 1910, Chinese authorities broke with their longstanding opposition to Western medicine. So you're writing about masks and the Times snatched up your op-ed, and this is February. And if I've got if I've got it right, and again we'd have to go back and look at the date at which 
public health messaging changed and they said that average folks like me should start wearing masks, but I think we hadn't reached it yet by that point. No. Okay, so there's 10 years basically seems like between the time you wrote that piece in our conversation <laughs> today. But tell us, a, tell us a bit about the argument of the piece and then how the world's changed since you wrote it. Right, so yeah, the piece was written, I think it was early February. Um, yeah, and it was about, I mean, I had, I had published a, a piece in medical anthropology about the uh, invention of the plague mask in, uh, in Manchuria in 1910 uh, to 11. Of course, there had been other, other masks before, right? Or other cloths around one's face to prevent uh, anything from miasmatic gases as uh, what people believed caused plague at the time to actual bacteria. I think I've seen masks used in Queensland in 1900 and, but, but these were just kind of uh, one-off inventions. They were not massively produced. The difference in Manchuria is that you have kind of a, a proper scientific investigation into the mask experiments, and then you have a massive production of the mask, uh, which is uh, adopted by all the doctors, all the nurses, and the health uh, workers, including uh, people working in burying or cremating bodies. And there is even an effort for the general population to adopt this mask, which is uh, incredible. And what really made it work, uh, as kind of internationally, let's say, is the fact that it was photographed. And it was photographed very systematically and really well, uh, and under the directions of uh, its inventor, uh, Dr. Wu Yande, who was uh, uh, the guy in charge of the anti-plague operations in the region. And it made all the international news. I mean, it was a great time because newspapers could carry good quality photographs and photographs of people wearing masks operating against pneumonic plague in uh, China were in every single newspaper at the time and for a long time, for several months. So this was kind of a great PR <laughs> for the mask. And I think it is a great, you know, to a great extent responsible for, you know, the quick, uh, adoption of the mask during the, the flu pandemic uh, seven years later. You know, if it hadn't been for this popularization of this image of the mask and its effectiveness against pneumonic plague, one of the worst diseases that exist in, 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 in the world, it has nearly a hundred percent case fatality rate if it is untreated and kills you even within 24 hours. You know, if, if it can stop that, then it could stop anything. So it was readily adopted. Um, now, at the time, of course, there were people who uh, refused or resisted wearing them, or uh, even more, more worryingly for uh, Dr. Wu Yande, people who wore them in the wrong way. And that was not wearing them kind of under the nose and stuff like that that we see today, but it was wearing them only after the mask had been stamped with a temple seal, which basically rendered it into a magical object, like an amulet. Uh, and Dr. Who was furious because in his mind, this mask was not only meant to protect the people wearing it, but it was also meant to transform them into rational, scientifically minded. Uh, kind of I see. Right. So it was part of a much broader biopolitical operation, which he had, you know, he had been trained in Cambridge. You know, he had a whole kind okay. of plan. So, so the mask was secular. Yes, absolutely. It was secular. Yes, it was scientific. It embodied hygienic modernity, as Rupogaski calls it really well. And uh, for who it, it was a promise for, you know, the dawn of a new era, you know, of reason and, uh, and, and science in China. And I mean, he was a lucky guy because he worked for the empire, which soon collapsed, but the, the Republic adopted him. And he, and he was made the director of the first big epidemiological apparatus in China. So he had the chance to perfect the mask and use it again in other epidemics. So it's not, it wasn't again a one-off. It was something that then became kind of a constant uh, object of epidemic control. And then it continued being used by the communists after 19, uh, 1949. And we have all these posters with people wearing the masks. So it becomes kind of a, mm -hmm. you know, an object which is treasured and and accepted by very very different regimes, from empire to republic to the communists. You know, it's it's rare that that, that anything in China is accepted by all three regimes, and the mask is one of these things. 
Now, uh, yeah. Yeah, please continue. Yeah. Looking at this uh, from the viewpoint of today, uh, and at the time when, well, scientists at the time were a bit skeptical about whether the mask can protect people from, uh, you know, from uh, from catching the disease. Uh, my thought was that going back to the SARS epidemic in 2003, when masks were again massively adopted in Hong Kong and in China, and having experienced this epidemic uh, myself in, in China and its aftermath, my ethnographic experience was that the masks were worn not simply to protect oneself from diseases or from uh, poll pollutants, uh, if they were worn in, in non-epidemic uh, contexts, but also as a sign of let's get on with things, let's get on together and work together and live together, right? Uh, it was a unifying, a simple unifying a symbol and object at the same time, which is visually very charismatic because, again, it features really well in photographs, etc., etc. And it is a very visible sign of, you know, I'm with you, I want to protect you, I want to do my best. So I was, well, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was, when in, in the West, in Europe and in the USA, it quickly developed into the symbol of conflict. You know, I mean, if anything, you know, comes to symbolize the split of our societies, you know, into people who believe that there is a disease uh, around an epidemic and people who don't believe it and people who believe that there is a conspiracy and people who, you know, don't think in terms of conspiracy theories, you know, this is the mask. And of course, not wearing the mask, you know, or burning the mask. I saw some photos yeah. of this, uh, recently, uh, you know, can can have very different, uh, can come from very different uh, uh, frameworks. It could be that, you know, people actually believe in a conspiracy theory and that the mask does something to them, that it suffocates them. Uh, it can be that people don't believe there is a virus. It can be that people don't believe that the masks work. You know, it can be people who think that it is, you know, not masculine to wear a mask and it's you know they're so macho they cannot bear wear, wearing a mask you know there are so many different angles from which people are coming against the mask but i think there is a common kind of if you want to call it that you know uh, something common between all these things right which is this mistrust of you know what scientists are saying and i think again to put my anthropological hat on we need to take this ethnographically seriously Absolutely. We should not, you know, it's, it does no good to just dismiss it. We need to listen to the details. We need to listen to every single angle and story in order to stand understanding how is it possible that this very simple and very effective and efficient, you know, epidemic control object has transformed into this symbol of, you know, of resistance, of non-compliance and all these things. Uh, and, and, you know, I wish it was something else, you know, uh, because not wearing a mask is, you know, possibly the most dangerous thing you could be doing right now. It's there's so much in what you are saying there. And I just, uh, Graham, I just want to see, do you want to come in on any, anything that Christos is just talking about there in terms of the, the mask as a unexpected symbol of uh, conflict in the West in the year 2020? What's your, what's your read on the mask? I think you're 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 muted, Graham. Your turn. My turn. My turn to unmute. No, I totally. I mean, that's why I'm so happy to be on this call with Christos because I, 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 you know, I love this the, the the way in which he frames this discussion about the mask. I've got yeah, you know, not really very much to add. It hasn't surprised me that um, that yeah, there has to be some object of. Yeah, a physical. It's the materiality of the the difference that I like that he's, he's saying here. Is that it's that yeah that we have a material object over which the um, the dis the disagreements can be uh, can be indicated. So no, it make, I'm not surprised at all. In fact, it'd be interesting to know what there'd be without it. Yeah, if we, yeah. If we must, yeah what right? What, yeah, what would the, what would that symbol be? And I don't, yeah, I really don't know what it is. I mean, even as you were both talking, I'm thinking of all of the different 
things that it has stood for, as stood in for as a talisman in the United States only this year. Also, scarcity. Also, yeah, yeah. an index of failure of the state. Yep. By me, I've made that argument. The, the the surprise of the of the lack of the ability to um, manage logistics effectively in the United States, but for the government to do it, fights within. I've heard arguments within behind the scenes, sometimes a little above coming out of the shadows between the Department of Health and Human Services and FEMA in the United States, where they're jostling for sort of administrative control, and they do it by way of the mask and the ventilator as a proxy for interagency squabble. I had Rashawn Ray on as a guest a couple times earlier this year, and he talked about the experience of race and the mask. And Sharona Pearl was a guest, and she was on and talked about the, the face and, and the mask and the impact for um, Islamic communities in the United States, racialized communities which have been told throughout American history not to wear a mask. There's, they are suspect if they wear a mask, and then when they wear it, uh, if they don't wear it and they go into public facilities in March, they were told they had to wear it. And there were cases where African-Americans had the police called on them for not wearing a mask. And we could go on and on with these complexities. But Christos, one thing, and just you'll have to forgive my lack of knowledge in this regard, but you, you sketched out this continuity in China over multiple different types of political regimes. Yep. I, I'm not going to give you enough time to answer this question, but... <laughs> How do you begin to account for that? And and I guess one thing I'm curious about is if someone in contemporary China wanted to register dissent against the mask, how might they do it? Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a difficult question. Uh, well, the first part of the question: how how is it possible that this mask, this object, becomes accepted? throughout different regimes. I think uh, I am someone who's been very critical uh, about uh, Dr. Uh, Wu Yandei's uh, research in general, but I think uh, I need to recognize it, uh, that one of the things he did was that he never sought to really politicize the mask, right? He kept it quite uninvested as an object, let's say, right? So he, he always insisted on the functionality of it. And you know, it did not feature very much or uh, or very aggressively in any political way throughout his career, at least. Uh, then, of course, it, it did take a political hue under uh, well the, the Mao during the Maoist years, uh, as is evident in uh, posters. And Marta Hansen, for example, has examined uh, the posters uh, with the masks. Um, but I think it, it did. It wasn't really. I mean. The Maoist years were so invested in in symbols that the mask was, you know, the least, uh, let's say, uh, harmful or invested amongst them. So it was easy for it to, you know, to be transferred to a new kind of regime. I think, but this may be just a naive uh, answer because I haven't done research on this. Um, now, I think that the problem uh, in the West is, first of all, that politicians have politicized the mask. Right, so Bolsonaro, for example, right, refusing to wear the mask. So this, or Trump being very slow in 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 uh, adopting the mask. So this comes first of all, you know, from the top, right. Uh, but it also is a very Foucauldian object, if you like, right, because it allows everyone to fight with everyone else, <laughs> or, or to you know to uh, to to contend about both power and knowledge, you know, on the basis of this very everyday pret-a-porter kind of uh, object, right? Uh, so that's, that's what makes it so charismatic, uh, in a sense. Well, let me uh, just remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and having a great discussion with Christos Linteras and Graham Mooney. Graham, it's it's your turn now to answer for writings early earlier in the pandemic. Um, and uh, but 
but particularly you published a really nice piece um, kind of behind the headlines historical piece. You guys are really good at these um, in the Globe and Mail in March. Uh, and, and I'm just gonna read one sentence from it. It's about quarantine. And you're giving us a sort of historical, um, uh, quick historical set of lessons and cautions about quarantine. And you said the hard question to ask is not so much whether quarantine should or should not be implemented, but what kind of society do we want to be? Again, um, it, you know, putting public health measures into a political framework, not letting people off the hook to think that they can just say, this is science, this is medicine, I don't have to deal with politics. You put it there for them to grapple with. And then the United States spent and has continues to spend full time arguing about quarantine for the next several months. So say a little bit, if you would, about the about the cautions in the piece, but then maybe how, again, as I asked Christos, how's the world changed since you published it? I think you'll have to un unmute, Graham. There's me, I'm winning 2-1. Um, so that's, I think the thing that animated me, or, or as I was beginning to write that piece, I saw a few comment pieces um, saying that, yeah, this is happening, this is all happening in China. You know, um, I think a recent, I think the World Health Organization report had just come out on you know, the impact of the measures in Wuhan and China. But yeah, there was there were there were responses around. Well, this couldn't ever happen in the United States. There's no way that you know, Americans are going to you know, accede to these sorts of restrictions and regulations. And it was like, no, yeah, whether you, it's whether they seed or not, there's going to be some debate around whether they should happen and they will happen. And the, the, the difficulty, I think, with interpreting it for a particularly US audience is how the, 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 the nested scales of politics work in, in the US, the, the role of federal, state, local. And how the, the, there's an interplay of those. I said at the top of the uh, at the top of the program how you know, Baltimore can behave differently to the rest of, of Maryland if it wants, and there's a bit of freedom there. Um, and I think translating that into what could or couldn't happen in a North American, but particularly U.S. context, was a challenge for me, and which is why I kind of left it a little bit on the table in the sense that I don't know what's going to happen, but also. You know, in the sense that but it is going to happen, and here's what history is telling us, and it's telling us that when we use quarantine, it's discriminatory. It's not always based on scientific not the perfect scientific knowledge as we might think it is, and you know, it's a highly it's a highly selective sort of measure in some senses that you'll find will be you know, applied differentially between racial groups, class groups, and so on. So I think that was I think that's played out. I'm fairly happy that. Yeah. That um, you know that those historical lessons, if you like, are, are still very they're very durable, and they're durable for a reason because they keep happening. This yesterday we were grappling with this when I was talking with uh, Terrell Hagler, who's a sanitation worker in in Philadelphia, who started an Instagram feed, uh, your fave trash man, uh, as a way to raise money to get PPE for tra for trash collectors oh. in Philadelphia. And so here you have, it's the inverse in a sense, the way we often think of the quarantine in the past, groups are targeted racially, um, ethnically for quarantine where others may not. And what he was describing is, you know, we're essential workers and so we're free of lockdown in a sense. In other words, you must be free of lockdown or you lose your job. And by the way, we don't have any masks or gloves for you. Yeah. There you have it. Yeah, I think, you know, that, that discrepancy, yeah, and, and that's, that was something that I remember was very early on in the academic, how we, how we consider, how, how essential workers come in and out of essentiality, if you like, you know, that, you know, they, they become really essential, so, and then we just, you know, healthcare, yeah, um, care home workers, you know, are walking a particularly difficult tightrope, um, and I think a lot of that comes down to one of the big things in the history of public health is this this sort of ten, constant tension between the individual and the community you know what you know, is individual behavior how it's you know, how it is uh, how it comes up against your know, community 
responses, but also community determinants. And yeah, you know, it strikes me that um, you're seeing a lot of rhetoric now around you know, people are being irresponsible. I can assure you, Christos, when the when the universities open up next week, it's going to be the students who are going to be blamed for anything that's going wrong, not the structures, not the not the universities who are telling students. Uh, you know, it's safe to come back and the, you know, and governments who are saying it's okay to go into theatres and stores. It's, it's it, the, the responsibility gets placed on individual behaviours when they're being given very confused, conflicting guidance from, from, from uh, you know, both politicians, but also in some, some respects, the, the scientific community as well. Yeah, the Secretary of Health, I think, has already blamed students for the future yeah. <laughs> second <Precognition>. wave. <laughs> Blame. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, that, that, that tension of um, the individual versus the, 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 the agency, the structural agency is very important in ways, yeah, very, very predictable, so predictable. Just to remind folks, and we're almost up on time in this discussion, but just to remind you, you've been listening to COVID calls and taking on many different issues around public health history and freedom and comparing issues in China and the West. We've been all over the map on this conversation. I want to, as we close, maybe just a final question, sort of a insider historian's question. Um, and I hope our non-historians listening will tolerate this, but I think it's interesting to everyone at this moment, which has to do with the record, the archive. Um, and this is a question that actually came up. Graham and I were on a panel that the American Philosophical Society and Adriana Link put together. God, Graham, when was that? Back in April, yeah. I guess. Yeah. It was a great discussion. Um, and the director, one of the directors of the Mutter Museum, I believe, was on that call as well. And... Uh, and we talked about the archive and the formation of the archive there. And, you know, there's this sense every historian has as they're doing their work. Um, oh, I really wish that, that this agency had collected this instead of that. You know, you, or you open up, you go into an archive and you open, I'll never forget this once, opening a, a box that had a very a great description of what I was going to find inside. And I opened it up and it was a piece of scientific measuring equipment that I had no idea what to do with. I, I don't, I don't interpret material objects. And so it was lost on me. We're always wanting something more in the archive, I guess, in that sense, historians are. And now thinking back Christos to your, to our discussion about the, the mask, um, we can't save everything. We, you know, and so we're in this moment where historians and archivists and museum experts are right now, and I think in the next couple of years, going to be having some tough talks about what to preserve, how to preserve, um, even things that we know will be perishable, but maybe we should preserve them for a short time to be in exhibits or other kinds of things. So I want to close with this question for each of you. What should be in the COVID archive? Christos, what do you think? Masks, well, how many can we save? I mean, yes, that would be great to save different masks. But as someone who has greatly enjoyed the correspondence between the discoverer of the, um, of the plague bacterium, Alexander Yersin, and his mother, I would say emails. Because the problem now is that, you know, there are no real letters being exchanged. And emails are, I mean, I delete them, you know, all the time. And, you know, all this record of the really kind of day-to-day -day trivial uh, changes on the epidemic will be lost, you know, in the way that they weren't lost back in the day. And, you know, if you go back to the time, you know, that Graham and I are looking at the end of the 19th century, you know, this is one of the most wonderful resources, archival resources, letters, not only by doctors to their mothers or to colleagues, but, you know, non-medical uh, you know, non people to one another. You know, and I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a very technologically savvy person, but I hope there is a way of, of saving, you know, emails about this uh, outbreak. Yeah, I mean, most, uh, most, government, oh, most governments have, you know, archival procedures and records. So I, I, to I totally agree with Christos. Um, and one of the things that is, I've been stressing to people is that most of the time with public health, 
everything happens under the surface. You know, the, you know, there's exchange of memos, discussions, meetings, emails, and yeah, you know, it's been interesting to see some of those disagreements rise to the surface during this pandemic. But we're only going to we're only going really going to be able to capture them fully historically if we have all the. You, know, you see one, you, you see the tip of the iceberg when you see watch a TV report or. You know, read a newspaper article. There is one other thing I would say, and it's it's, it's almost flipping what you're suggesting, mm. Scott. And that is um, in Baltimore, there was a recent political scandal, and the mayor resigned. And one of the one of the mayor's close associates was the controller of the city's finances, and she uh, she lost her post in the recent election, and <laughs> when the when the city hall was closed because of COVID. One of her former, one of the people who used to work for the controller in her department came in and spent a whole day shredding documents in, in, in the, and I think that would have been noticed if the building hadn't been closed because of COVID. You know, the building was, was almost, was desolate. And this person was able to spend 12 hours in a room just putting documents in the shredder which says a lot about government in baltimore and you know sure. and, but it also is like not just covid archives but you know making sure that what archives are getting kept when we work at home and things like that that mm-hmm. yeah, yeah is there going to be a, like this gap in our record of 2020 of lots of other things as well not just covid related things that you know we'll just have to say yeah that was 2020 it's not in the record so it's not just public health historians and COVID archives, it's lots of other historians working on other stuff as well where the information might just disappear or not be present. One has to wonder right now um, with the Trump administration's basically gone to war against inspectors general, uh, this kind of thing you described in Baltimore. I don't think that's just a Baltimore story, Grant. No, I'm sure, no, no absolutely not. I just want to remind people you've been listening to COVID calls. We're live every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking about the COVID-19 vaccine with Emily Brunson and Monica Schock-Spana. And I want to thank my guests today, Graham Mooney and Christos Linteros, Linteros, for this great conversation. Thank you so much for making time to talk today. Thanks, Carlos. Yeah, thank you very much. Stay healthy, everybody. See you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.